Mr. Brandon Monroe, welcome back. How are you, sir? I'm really well, Matt. There's a seven in front of the uranium price. How could I be anything except uh, happy and looking forward to what's going on next? I bet, I bet, I bet. Um, we, we we should maybe not not talk so much in the future. If, if, if the spot price is going to rise like it, did, it does every time we don't talk, uh, this could be our last show. <laughs> what, what, that's true. <laughs> Next next show at two hundred dollars. <laughs> Let's do that. See you there. Or as um, <clears throat> or as one commentator has put out in the, in the press recently, or, 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 uh, recently is a, a three hundred dollar uranium. But let, let's see how that all goes before we talk about it. Um, right. Well, what has been patterning with spot price? What can you tell us? Yeah. Well, it, it has been a while since we've um, recorded a show actually because I've been travelling and we had we did uh, get together in London. In the meantime, we had a. A good chat with Olga Skolyukova, who's joined us recently. So anyone who missed that should have a look at that. It was really well received. But uh, since 31 August, which was the last time we recorded the energy show together, we've seen spot go up significantly. I think it went up from uh, in the high 50s uh, through $73. It softened in the last two sessions uh, down to $70 a pound. And we'll, uh, that's largely on the basis of some announcements from Kazatomprom. But the point is, it's still $70 uranium very early in the season. Uh, fuel buyers have only been back from holidays a couple of weeks. Uh, it's only a few weeks since um, the World Nuclear Association Symposium. And we still have Nuclear Energy Institute's uh, International Fuel Seminar later in October. And that tends to be when the confirmatory messages are all delivered. Those two key conferences work in unison. WNA, everyone comes back from their summer holidays in the Northern Hemisphere. They do a lot of calibrating. They exchange notes. They talk to the suppliers. They understand the lay of the land. They then go back to their offices, work out what's happening. And the NEI forum is very important that then really kicks off the seasonality in this sector. So this this is a little bit like pre-season training, and we've already seen a spot price in the 70s with effectively zero assistance from sport. So the key message that's being recognised by utilities, by other market intermediaries, by analysts, investors, is that this time it's for real. Uh, in, in all of the discussions that I've had over the last couple of weeks with investors, a consistent theme that is coming through in many different ways, but I could basically summarise it as we no longer have any concerns that this could be a false rally in uranium. That's vitally important because that's the key message that generalist investors want to know. They want to know that this time it's for real. They want to see the momentum and What's astonishing on ASX is it feels like, and certainly I'm being told, that uranium is a single bright light in metals right now. So that's a very unusual set of circumstances. Sure, equities haven't responded as well as the spot price, but I think that's a, a reflection of general negativity amongst equities at a macro level. And it does make me feel that there's a lot of growth to come. Well, I think I think equities on, on some uranium generators have, have reacted quite well. I, I'm, I'm saying the last few days, maybe people taking some some profits off the table, and uh, as they should, 
for, for, for sure. But yeah, um, uranium was definitely getting a, a, the, the old torchlight shone on it um, from, from a great height. Um, just, just, just on that kind of sustainability of, of this price, you know, we all want it to drive up. It doesn't mean it necessarily should, could, would stay at, stay at these levels. So you just, if you don't mind, a little bit more on why what you're hearing and what you're feeling with regards to its ability to sustain at these kind of higher lows, to use the cliche. If, if you look at it on a day-by-day basis since we last spoke, so since the end of August, uh, you'll see that it's effectively gone up or stayed um, even every single day. And it's been almost every day that it's gone up and big jumps, dollar a pound, $2 a pound. And then we have a Kazadam Prom announcement that triggers two things. One is, you've, as you just mentioned, you've got investors who in a very short period of time are sitting on very substantial profits. So anyone who bought, you might remember our show where we, uh, six or eight weeks ago, where we said it's got a very August 2021 feel to it. And of course, for anyone following, that shortly preceded an enormous inflation of equities when Sput came to the market and started winding up its flywheel with its issuing units and buying uranium. So anyone who'd gone out and bought when you and I discussed the August 2021 feel, uh, if they'd bought a portfolio of ASX uranium stocks, they're probably on about 80% gains in a matter of weeks. So when you've got that much profit, that leads to a couple of things. Most notably, it obviously leads to some happy faces, but it leads to nervousness about when to take profits. So a slight chink in the story with Kazadam Prom announcing that in 2025, they'll return to full production. That provides a very clear profit-taking signal for investors who are quite comfortable sitting on their 60, 70, 80, 100% gains. Now, of course, it has a similar effect with the spot price. When a spot price has been relentlessly moving up, there's nervousness as to, well, I don't want it as a trader, for example, if I'm trading principal, I don't want to be the bag holder if it pulls back to 65. So the smallest little trigger, I want to sell and I want to sell quickly and lock in what I've got, take a breather, reassess, and then move on. Now, that's a long way from forming a conclusion that there's anything wrong with the thesis or there's anything to suggest that the uranium price might continue to go up. That Kazadam Prom um, production is in 2025. That's a long way off. That's in the midterm. And that's going to do nothing in a direct sense to address what's happening in the market at the moment, which is there's very little liquidity, there's very few sellers. There's no excess inventory around to sell into the demand. And the demand is coming from utilities. It's coming from traders. It's coming from producers. All of the big producers now need to be buying in the spot market. There's um, reports circulating over the last couple of weeks that even Russia needs to be buying in the spot market in order to meet its deliveries because it's having hassles getting their material out of uh, St. Petersburg. And Ros Adam still has the enviable record of never missing a delivery in 20 years. If they have to pay through the nose for spot uranium to hold that record, it's small beer change for them. So you've got all of these demand pressures on the spot price. BHP, um, 
uh, rumoured to be abandoning its long policy of selling through traders onto the spot market and now considering a more managed, marketed approach to its byproduct uranium from Olympic Dam. So all of these factors only point in one direction. And whether you're seeing another 6,000 tonnes of uranium being produced by Kazakh joint venture mines in 2025, that might help to stabilise the market in 2025, but it's not going to do anything between now and the next 12 months. So I just don't see this as being anything other than a pause while people take their breath, they reassess, and if they're uh, you know, if they're lucky enough to be a market intermediary sitting on a gain, as opposed to all of these other parties who are wondering how much higher it's going to go before they can cover their positions, uh, then it's a natural profit-taking opportunity. And I think equities are similar. Right. Okay. And if, and if, but you also look at this. I think the context of this is you've got 50% of Kazakhstan on branch production. There are there, there about heading east. You've also, something I want to talk to you about in a second is, is, is Niger and, and, and what the French, French government is, is doing there, um, is it's moving towards, I think people are hoping it's moving towards a much more bifurcated market where perhaps the West is going to have to overpay to be able to access what they want because some markets are shutting up shop, some markets are heading elsewhere and some markets have been closed to them. So um, do you think there's a kind of dawning realization there's not too many options left on the table? Yeah, slowly. Slowly that realization's coming. So, um, and what will be really interesting is, do we see the bifurcated market or do we see something that's more nuanced in the form of a trifurcated market with the West as we know it, Russia and its significant sphere of influence through its export program, and China, the behemoth in its own right, including in the next few years, its own export program. It has delivered Huolong One reactors uh, in its export program, and let's see how many more of those they deliver. So here's the thing about um, Kazakh production in 2025. So um, I'll take their word for it that they can feasibly return to full production by then, Uh They've got a lot of work to do in order to achieve that. They've announced recently that they're going to have to start building acid parts because they can't source enough sulfuric acid. So there are constraints out there. But um, assuming that they do achieve what their stated goal is, which is full production in 2025, that's not the same as them being able to sell all of that production, particularly into the West, at prevailing spot prices. Um, the U U.S. utilities have gorged themselves on cheap Kazakh production for many years now, same with European utilities. At some point, their risk mitigation steps and risk management policies step in and they say, well, whew, we've had 30% of our, for example, 30% of our portfolio has been coming from Kazakhstan. That's great. That sets a nice cheap base. But we can't go more than that. Because if something awful happens there, or if Kazakhstan, for example, in that trifurcated scenario, just gets torn between Russia and China and the material just goes to those two markets, a utility can't be 40, 50% exposed to one supplier. It's, it's just too obvious a risk not to mitigate it. So sure, Kazakhstan can make that production, but it's not the same as being able to sell it. And that's to your point, that's where and we're experiencing this in our 
interactions with market players at the moment. That's where the diversified supply becomes critically important, and in particular important for two of those trifecta parties, China and the West. In, 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 interesting times, and, and I think perhaps um, okay, we've, we've touched upon it before, I'm sure we'll touch upon it again, and um, you put that in the context of, um, you, know, we, 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 you know, we talked about the nuclear, I'm looking over here, the nuclear fuel report. We talked about the context of companies saying they'll get into production, and companies being able to get into production and companies producing at the rate that they said they're going to be able to produce, that's also in the back backdrop here, which I think, again, slowly being recognized that perhaps not not all is well um, on, on that front. And um, the ones that can will be beneficiaries of it. And the ones that say they can, they're going to need to start demonstrating saying that they're going to be able to move through those spaces. I, I, I think it's very, very interesting times when it comes to supply um, at the moment. Trifurcated, it could be quad quadfurcated. Who knows? Um, we better we better leap on to the markets. Woof. I know, I know. Too much fun. Too much fun. Um, we better leap on to more positive things. Um, so, well, that was positive. That was positive. It's positive for price. It's positive for investors, but it, it's it's not necessarily positive for the, the demand side. Um, winner of the week. Who are we giving it to this week? Well, it's a tie this week. We've and oh. it's a tie on both sides of the industry. So first of all, the first winner of the week from the supply side of the industry is ninety two energy. And it's not exactly oh, well done. Week. Yeah, well done. No, great work. It's it's not well quite done. this week, it's over the last few weeks, but since we've met last time. Now the the reason I've given it to them is they're an explorer in the Athabasca Basin. They've got a good track record. I think it was hole number four. They actually struck a substantial um, intersection, which is now being developed into a deposit. So full kudos for them. But the thing with the Athabasca is it's high stakes game. You're not likely to find something in your first or second campaign. And what they've identified is a parallel structure to the existing uh, discovery that they've made at Gemini. So that's great work. And it's a little bit like, Matt, you're so au fait with all the rock stars in the world. It's it's uh, meaning that they're unlikely to be a 70s one-hit wonder. Uh, they're going to be able to build on identifying that parallel structure, use what they've learned already with their significant discovery that they made at Gemini, and that gives them the expectation that there will be additional parallel structures, it tells them that they're onto the right geology, and it gives them a real fighting chance of, um, in successive campaigns, starting to grow the resource and reposition themselves. Um, it's challenging for exploration companies generally, but it's particularly challenging in the Athabasca at the moment because there really are a large number of players who are focused on the fabulous potential patient potential of the Athabasca. And to be able to get your head above the crowd, you need something very substantial. And so this is hopefully for the good folk at 92 Energy, they're now on the road to um, building on their early success and creating something substantial via additional discoveries there. Yeah, I think it's an exceptional team. And in fact, um, Siobhan Lancaster was on with us yesterday. I'm just talking about, she, she's interesting, right? Because She's former M&A lawyer. Nothing wrong with them, Matt. 
was about to say. I was about to say. So they're quite smart, aren't they? Those those M and A lawyers. We're nice people, and they have got a good choice in wine as well. Indeed, indeed. Look, okay, um, uh, enough patting each other on the back here. Um, but no, a smart woman, being involved, was involved with the sale of uh, Husab, whatever that was, two point two billion uh, Aussie. Um, it, it's there's a process, there's a plan. She's got a really good team. She's had this kind of parallel structure. Uh, grades are still good. And I guess I guess the difficulty sometimes with some of these juniors is when they kind of shoot out of the gate quite quickly, as, as they did with a fantastic uh, set of drill results, it's hard to sustain that excitement. Uh, now they're kind of on, you know, in that process of that kind of, you know, meticulous, con- conservative, considered, you know, process-driven, um, systematic approach. And maybe that's not quite exciting, certainly not in a market like this, but they've got something good going on. So, so that, that's a nice one. That's a nice one. Um, we did not confer about this. This is your choice, and, and I agree with you. Uh, right, you said it was a, a joint winner of the week. Who's, who's, who's the other company, sorry? So that was on the supply side. Now, on the demand side, the winner goes to Constellation. They are the... Okay. US is yep. the largest single utility. In fact, I think they're the world's largest privately held utility, non-governmental. And they, over a unusually hot and difficult summer, achieved almost a 100% capacity factor with their reactor fleet. Now, let me, let me explain what that actually means, and then you'll get a sense for how huge this really is. So your capacity factor is uh, in a... 24-hour period extended over whatever your measurement time is, how much of that time has been producing nuclear power at nameplate from your reactors? So 100% means, or almost 100% means, almost for every waking moment or every sleeping, waking, operating moment over that hot summer, they were full-scale generating nuclear energy. Badly needed, I might add, given what's been happening in the U.S., If you compare that to, say, intermittent renewables, it's quite typical to achieve capacity factors of, say, 30 or 40% if they've been put in the right place. And even solar, even if you say, well, the sun shines on average in in a sunny place 12 hours a day, you need to remember that there's shoulders on that as well. It's not delivering full output uh, just because the sun's been up in the sky for a couple of hours. It takes some time to build up to that full output. The US is a leader. They have the highest capacity factor of any substantial fleet in the world, typically sat at about 93% over the last uh, few years. And Constellation have been the leader in pushing their reactors further and further, increasing the efficiencies there. They've got a huge um, innovation team around how do they get more efficiency? And that was initially driven by commercial factors their, their reactors were very uh, under commercial pressure because of cheap shale gas. Remember that thing that used to exist? So cheap shale gas meant that they were under huge commercial pressure. That pushed them to be more efficient. And now they're everyone, including them, their shareholders, their customers, and the country at large has been the beneficiary of that work that they've done with this near 100% capacity factor. Good timing as well as everyone's starting to moan about wind and solar's capacity dropping. Another important attribute that people need to be reminded of, nuclear power is not only carbon-free, it's 24-7. 
Yeah, I mean, and we're, t- we're talking, it's significant as well. We're talking about the equivalent of 15 million average US homes here, right? It's not It's not nothing. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not just the fact that it's, they've reached 100% capacity in during, you know, these heat waves, extreme weather conditions. It's the scale that it can deliver into as well. So, yeah, okay. Well, look, well, well done, ma'am. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's lots of other um, close runners up um, in, in this sector as well. But um, well done to those those two, ninety-two energy, constellation energy. Um, and we can't we can't have winner of the week without following very very quickly with bungle of the week. So again, who's getting that? So it's a little bit different this week, Matt. It, it, I'm going to call it the blameless bundle, uh, bungle, the blameless bungle. Um, it's still a lot of blame, but they've redeemed themselves in the meantime. Okay. So the bungle is going to the previous presidential administration of South Korea under President Moon, who for no better reason, and I really believe this, no better reason than politicking and getting himself elected, he brought in a ridiculous nuclear phase-out program, which is mercifully for the people of Korea and the planet now been reversed. So the bungle is awarded to the fact that just one aspect of that nuclear phase-out program, which was the delay in a two-reactor construction program at the Shin uh, Hanul, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Shin Hanul nuclear power plant. We don't talk about it much because it's been on care and maintenance. Just the uh, the delays to that caused by this political decision have already cost the South Korean economy $7 billion US dollars. Now, that's a bungle of grand scale. Now, of course, the redemption comes in the form that they've seen the error of their ways. They're actually quantifying that error, which is important. You know, As we know, politicians are pretty good at saying, oh, but that's in the past, that doesn't count. Someone's out there counting it and setting an example for the rest of the world as to how expensive these poor decisions can be. And not only that, but South Korea was in the news this week uh, saying that they would like to see 60 different nuclear SMR nuclear componentry exporters up and running by 2030. So that's everything from selling reactors to making widgets. Once again, South Korea is back on track to being a world leader in the nuclear game. And that was the real tragedy, that the actual cost of their politicking is vastly greater than $7 billion, both in measured in terms of planetary cost because of the increased carbon load, but also the damage to their economy, because they had the best nuclear industry in the Western world. And that was led from their domestic program and their heavy shipbuilding and their heavy industry and their absolute capacity to build reactors at home and abroad. And then... What we now know to be for the worst possible reasons, i.e. getting someone elected, they almost uh, destroyed their own industry there. So it's good to see them back on track, trying to uh, reclaim all of the ground that they lost. Right. Okay. Okay. So nearly a bungle, but maybe not quite a bungle, and maybe there's some redemption to be to, to, to be had. Um, in terms of you know um, their desire to nurture nuclear exporters i mean they 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 made it made a claim uh recently that they that they're going to do this i mean what do you what do you think in effect that actually means what does does that actually convert into is this just politics speak or 
Is this a you know, meaningful, actionable um, intent? It's more than just politics speak. There's always an element of that, and that's obviously the timing of the announcement and the way it's portrayed. But I'll, I'll give an example about why I trust South Korea when they say they're going to do something like that. And quite often in Africa, you'll go to an event where governments and policymakers and civil society are saying, what does what is required to get said African country to become a developed nation? And more often than not, the example they use is South Korea because coming out of the 50s, South Korea was absolutely a developing country. It was poverty-stricken after the war finished. And yet in a few short decades, mainly through an in, a heavy investment in education and also through some clever um, uh, administrative and organizational tools that they use to get ahead of the technology game, South Korea is now absolutely a developed nation. It's one of the most developed nations in the world. So they've got they are the gold standard in terms of transforming a country. And so they've got a lot of heavy industry. They've got a lot of nuclear smarts. And really what the government's saying is that they're going to find where the remaining chains are from the previous administration, eliminate those and provide assistance where they can to allow that industry to just do what it needs to do, which is get hold of the opportunities in this uh, very buoyant forward-looking projections for SMRs in particular, but uh, conventional nuclear as well. Okay. Well, I hope they do deliver on that one. Um, let's talk about something I mentioned to you earlier. Okay. So the, the, the question I've got, and it comes back to this kind of whole supply and trifurcated markets, corporation markets, is around what is happening at, uh, in Niger. Because, and, and what's it mean for uranium and also more broadly, obviously, nuclear, now that sort of France is, I guess, officially um, pulling out of Niger. The, the, the ambassador is back in Paris. What's the knock-on effect? So this was really the key turning point that we've been watching for ever since end of July when the coup started to emerge. Would France dig in and continue its decades-long foreign policy in this part of the world, in the Sahel in particular, or would they rationalise and take a, a very different direction, uh, which you know to date would be regarded as very unfrench? So what they've done with this announcement is, first of all, after a long standoff, they have removed their ambassador, and secondly, they've now withdrawn their troops, and they've announced that they will withdraw all of their troops and all of their military personnel by the end of the year. Very significant. For a period of time, the French government and Macron were saying uh, it's not up for the illegal military junta government to tell us what we can and can't do because we've got an agreement with the democratically elected uh, government in Niger and they are the only party who can change the nature of that agreement. But it seems like there's now a broad acknowledgement that actually the reality on the ground is different to that and they've made the decision to pull out. So very important for uranium because the uranium production um, by the French, Irano, um, in joint venture with others and the Nigerian government itself has always relied on the state apparatus to provide security in that part of the world. 
and it's ebbed and flowed from time to time. But uh, in general, the picture in Niger has been uh, dynamic. Let's say you might you might call it hairy, and that's only increased recently with instability through the Sahel region. So the the question is now: Well, if French troops are withdrawing, and the French government has conceded or acquiesced to the military junta, where does Irano get its security guarantee from? It would have to come from the military junta itself, who are having a whole range of problems themselves, including how to pay their and feed their own soldiers because of sanctions. So it puts a immediate pressure on the return to production, because everyone will remember that Irano announced that it's temporarily ceasing production until it can get reagents back into the country. But that return to production becomes a more difficult calculus because they can't just rely on uh, stability from their own government. They now need to negotiate stability. And at what cost will that be? We've seen a very disturbing uh, analogue set in Mali where that negotiation has taken a very dark turn for Western investors. Uh, so that will be front of mind for Irano with its production. But more importantly, because it's 5% of the world's uranium, it's significant. But what does it mean for development projects, particularly the enormous Imararan project that Irano have in Niger? That's a project that's always been a high-cost project. Many people in the industry have said that it needs $100 uranium to start working. Well, we're getting a lot closer to $100 uranium, and that was going to be one of the more important sources of supply uh, in that higher price environment. How does Arano think about a development timeframe that requires probably a couple of billion dollars of investment if it doesn't have security from a party it can trust into the longer term? And that seems like an impossible equation to solve at the moment. So at the very least, I'd expect to see that development now on hold. It might be seized by the uh, military junta. You know, it's very hard to know what they're going to require of Irano. Um, a large part of the basis on which they took control was an anti-colonial, anti-French platform. Uh, if you look at some of the posts in social media, the English um, social media around Niger, you can see it is running hot with demands at French exit and um, a misconceived viewpoint that uh, Irano has only ever extracted value and given nothing to the people, that the fact of the matter is Irano has been paying its um, joint venture operating companies well above the spot price for more than 10 years um, by government agreement in Niger. So uh, the, the, the truth is actually very different to what that perspective is. But in that environment where you know, re perspective is reality or perception is reality, it, it matters not at all. How do they possibly get comfort that they're going to be able to secure their operations? Um, because even with their existing operations there, it's hard to imagine Irano engaging a private army to secure what they've got. It's just not worth it to them. It's just not worth having the blood on their hands of having their own security detail need to uh, engage in firefights with whether it's rebels or locals or the army itself. Well, I think it's, it's very difficult times in, in, in Niger. Um, obviously, they've 
you know, that whole Western Sahel region, as you say, in terms of um, Islamic fundamentalist growth, um, or quite frank, or quite frankly, just or terrorists or criminal activity, Al Qaeda, ISIS. Now you've kind of got the, these coups um, happening, and we we we, t- we talked about this in sort of 2019, and the fact that this was brewing um, across across the region. That said, Niger, the the <clears throat> whether or not that this this military military coup and and the the, the leaders um, here whether um, um, Masadou gets back in or whether the the the, the, the current military leaders um, stay, there, there's going to have to be some sort of sensible view on international investment into the country because it's, with all these sanctions in place, as you say, it's not just money. Money doesn't flow. Goods don't flow. Food doesn't flow. It, they're going to have to come up with some sort of agreement. Is Do you see this as a sort of a, a temporary tactical position by the French government because clearly they need the uranium. They obviously have a huge influence across you know multiple countries in Africa with the you know there's a there's a currency which they're kind of clipping a coupon from each each time. Um so the French aren't gonna go away quietly, surely. Well yes. That's exactly what they said they're doing. They've said that uh, after not going quietly for some time, they've now said that they're withdrawing their troops by the end of the year. So if you think about it, number one, with the French uh, military presence now diminished and soon to be removed, that's dramatically reduced the prospects of the of a return to the existing democratically elected administration. That's hard to imagine from here. Um, what's more likely to imagine is some form of a compromise that lifts the ECOWAS sanctions um, and everyone is able to just get on with things under the new reality. Um, the French presence was one of the only uh, reasons to believe that there might be an enforcement action by ECOWAS. Um, I'm just not sure anymore for my money anyway. But then you say, well, where does it go from there? So the French would need to be reinvited back in. And I also struggle to see how that would happen under an, either an existing military junta or under a returned um, civilian democratically elected government that's returned at the behest of the military. Um, look, anything's possible, and I'm far from um, an expert in West Africa by any means, but I'm struggling to see a scenario where the French get invited back in, and for that matter, where they are the chosen partner to deal with chaos in country because I think the chosen partners very likely to be un-French and with uh, success, with the success of the Wagner group, the previous Wagner group, the group of mercenaries formerly known as Wagner, um, with their success in West Africa, that seems to be a much more likely choice. Okay. Okay. Well, let's say Brazil gets back in um, or, or, or not, but I guess a lot, a lot to play for, and and it, and we'll see how it plays out over the next few um, months. I suspect. Um, I'm sure there's a few twists in the tale to come yet. And um, now we need to talk about how do companies get valued? How do you value companies in this day and age? Equity is getting an absolute 
compounding. Um, some of the old cry, the old formulas don't seem to be working anymore. What would you say to us? You, 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 I think you want to highlight a tweet of the week, which maybe addresses a component of this. Um, so why don't you talk us through that? Yeah, so let's have a look at the tweet of the week, which has been selected from Mineral Stocks Investor, an account that I wasn't previously familiar with, but they've put out this uh, really helpful um, graph here, which distinguishes between the enterprise value per pound for resources, like not every company has resources in uranium, but enterprise value per pound at the peak in 2007 versus where we are now. Uh, so as you can see, uh, the peak in 2007 um, was very significant, north of $20 a pound. So bear in mind that there's very few, even at $70 uranium, there aren't that many companies making a margin of $70 a pound on production at the moment. So that's interesting. And But the median was $8.1 a pound. That is one way of measuring uranium companies. And when we talk about a rising tide lifting all boats, that's a good way of thinking about the size of the hull of the boat or the degree of flotation that it has. Uh, that is the resources on hand with the project. So at the moment, they've deduced that the median is $1.6 or $1.60 a pound. So there's still a vast gap of value to be closed between $1.60 a pound as a medium and $8.10 per pound under 2007. And that has the right feel about it, if you ask me. So the other thing that um, doesn't come out from a statistical exercise like this is, of course, the quality of the pounds. So the quality of the pounds comes down to various different things. Uh, the margin embedded in those pounds is probably always the biggest driver. But now that we have a uranium price pushing through $70, that margin becomes less important. When uranium was at $20, uh, anything that could make money had a real value at that point. At $50, there was still a big division between pounds that were profitable and pounds that weren't. Now that we're pushing through 70 on the way to something that's got three figures, I dare say, um, that margin becomes less important. So then you go to, well, what are the next subsidiary levels of importance for enterprise value per pound? And that comes down to proximity to production. That's probably the biggest one because at the end of the day, an EV per pound is a very crude measure of how profitable in an investor's time frame that all body is going to be. So proximity to production is very, very important. Uh, you've then got another important measure, which is, well, where are those pounds? If you're a company, if you're invested in a company that has accumulated bits of pounds all over the place that add up to an impressive number, it's not the same as having your pounds all in one project that's developable, or perhaps in one project with some extra pounds in a satellite deposit, or if there's um, a couple of projects that create a pipeline, a viable pipeline. So I think the takeaways from this, I've given it tweet of the week because it's a good time to be thinking and talking about enterprise value per pound. Um, I've got a particular interest in it because um, Bannerman Energy, the company that I run, 
we're trading at below that medium at the moment, despite the fact that uh, we're the most proximate to production large-scale greenfields project in the Western world at the moment. And so we're trading below that dollar uh, sixty a pound with a more than two hundred million pound resource. That's all in the one place. It's all in the one pit, uh, meaning that we expect our um, Itango mine to have a multi-decade profile, which is exactly what utilities want when they're anxious about future supply. So it's definitely one to watch. I think uh, I'd encourage uh, those guys to continue publishing that comparison as we see the um, enterprise value per pound gap close on 2007. And just one last comment on EV per pound, because it's easy to be immediately dismissive of anything that happened in 2007 because it was such an acute spike. However, the thing that drives EV per pound valuations in totem, you know, in general, is scarcity. And Ferg Cullen put out a great tweet that was almost tweet of the week. Let's give it a high commendation or a runner-up, identifying that uh, in 2007, there was no deficit. And now we're already running at a deficit with various projections, including WNA, seeing a deficit out for many, many years. So it's that deficit that was that will drive the ultimate median enterprise value per pound that we see in this cycle. So for that reason, I'm not quick to be dismissive of this particular metric of what we saw in 2007 as an analog for what we can expect as investors in this sector this time around. And I, and I just don't wonder, there's lots of ways you're looking at this, right? And, it, and you talk about the that proximity to production. That's a factor. And harking back to what I sort of said at the beginning of this conversation with the guys, I don't actually believe, and quite a few commentators and quite a few insiders don't actually believe that all of the paths being mooted by some companies are going to get out of the ground. So it, it kind of gives a, a kind of false comfort to the market that, oh, well, the pounds are there when we need them. And if that if they are not there, when they're needed, or if they're not there till three hundred dollar uranium, um, it it actually makes those that can produce pass on the ground should be valued much higher than those who won't be producing those pounds on the ground. I mean that, that that that's the reality because there's a there's an absolute intrinsic value there which you know if they're likely to actually come out of the ground should be valued higher. Than perhaps if some bothered to actually do the analysis of some of these companies with one, not a lot of pounds on the ground that they're talking about, and and two, um, the inability to show how that how the heck these things actually come out of the ground without a kind of ridiculous valuation, um, being it, you know in, in terms of the the the, the spot price for uranium. So I I, I think there's um talk about bifurcated trifurcated again. I think there's there's ways of kind of looking and analysing you know what those paths the grass should be worth for some companies versus others," he said. "said said that said the investor slash banker." Um, but you, uh, hopefully, you understand what I'm what I'm trying to say. Definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, another way of saying the same thing is that um, pounds in the ground that you're valuing as a company right now should have, if they're not in production, that is, um, if you try and bring them back to an NPV basis, well, anything that's production out beyond seven years theoretically shouldn't attract any um, significant 
in PV, if at all, depending on the discount rate that you're using. So that's where the proximity to production becomes so important. The other thing that drives EV per pound is when we move into a full-scale consolidation phase. Uh, enterprise value per pound is really important because we know that the big acquirers in this sector, and we can use 2007 as a good analogue here, the big acquirers in the sector are the big boys. It's the utilities. It's the, um, the parastatals or the state-owned enterprises. And they are buying a future, and that future consists of quality pounds in the ground. NPV isn't so important to them. So that's why the Russians paid over a billion dollars for Makuju River in Tanzania, which incidentally still isn't in production. That's why CGN paid $2.2 billion for HUSAB, which is in production. It's why Arriva, which is now Arano, paid $2 billion for um, Uramin, which was predominantly the Nigerian project, um, uh, Nigerian, the Namibian project, uh, Tricopy. So that's what will drive values ultimately when we enter into a full M&A round in this sector. So they're the two arguments. And why do they buy it? They buy it because they believe that those pounds will come into production. And two of those three examples will be uh, very informative as to how much certainty they're going to look for before they start paying top dollars in this sector. Interesting, interesting times to see see what that what that range looks like. You know, obviously, t- talking about medians is one thing, but I, I I think the the upper end of that scale, I think, is where the where the real value is, and that's the people who will actually produce and will produce that scale. Um, right, okay. Um, we'll finish off as we always do with main shots and and, and fizzers. Um, what are we going to talk about here? So much discussed. Discussed as in, not disgusted, but uh, you and me discussing things. Much discussed is the SPUT announcement at the end of the WNA Symposium that they would be considering a redemption mechanism. So SPUT being the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, one of the most important market players in the world in uranium right now. And for a long time, the what was commonly understood with the trust is they issue units, they buy uranium, and by the nature of their constitution, they're they're not able to sell that uranium. So it's been discussed as long-term sequestered. Once they've bought it, it's just put into storage, never to be seen again, at least in the course of the next cycle or two. So it came as a big surprise to a lot of people that they made an announcement that, in fact, they were going to investigate a limited redemption mechanism. So what is a redemption mechanism? It means that I can buy units in SPUT and then I can effectively say to SPUT, I'd like to redeem these units in return for physical uranium. So it surprised some investors because this concept of permanency seemed to be at risk. If you could just buy units and get uranium out, well, surely that uranium is going to come flooding back into the market. So there's some nuances here. The first one is, it's being considered. It's not actually locked in. But uh, I caught up with John Champaglio at, uh, in London at WNA and uh, understand from him that they're looking at either once or twice a year. So not a particularly regular opportunity for redaction. You have to remember that you can't just go and get your half a barrel of uranium and go and put it in the safe at home. So it can only be qualifying parties 
who necessarily need to have a converter account. Converter accounts are expensive. They're not easy to obtain. So that limits the field of participants really to uranium traders and maybe a couple of the bigger players, the bigger banks, who might decide that they're going to take a proper swing at uranium as um, you know Goldman Sachs did during the last um, cycle, for example. So then you'd say, well, why would they do it? And is it a good thing, moonshot, or a bad thing, fizzer? And having had the chance to chat to a few traders in London and also speak to John himself, I actually think it's a good thing, and I'll tell you why. The When equities came off after Silicon Valley Bank collapse and we're all in the toilet for a while, uh, the spot traded at a big discount, spent a lot of time at below 10%, went even below 15% discount. And that eroded a lot of the confidence in this uh, instrument from bigger investors. And a lot of the feedback that Sprott had been getting is we're only prepared to invest if there's a redemption mechanism of some description. And also, they spoke to funds who, by the virtue of their mandate, could only invest in physical trusts that had certain requirements. And the way those requirements were usually read, uh, written is to follow SEC rules, including a redemption mechanism. So what does that mean? It means that if they do introduce a redemption mechanism, the first effect is there's a larger pool of capital that is, th is available for them to tap into because there's no longer these exclusions. However, more importantly, that capital will be um, more attractive to a instrument that's not going to trade at these deep discounts. So the real reason why they're considering the redemption mechanism is to try and ensure that the trading price of SPUT hugs the underlying net asset value of their uranium much more tightly. And the way it would work is this. Uh, a uranium trader has to work pretty hard for their dollars at the moment. No longer is there the carry trade gravy train that they could tap into when uranium was oversupplied. So they're looking for opportunities. So Sput is in many respects a uranium trade that's offered on a platter to them. Let's say that Sput trades, let's say that the mechanism is there. They know exactly what the dates are. They obviously being a uranium trader, they've got their converter account. They know the procedure, they can be very precise about timing and when they do it and when they'll have the uranium showing up in their converter account. So if they hold sprot units, sput units, they've got a lot of, uh, lot of certainty that if they choose to, on a particular date, that uranium will be credited to their account. Therefore, if they see the sprot physical uranium trust trading at, let's say, a 5% discount to NAV on a day, they can buy units and sell uranium to be delivered after the redemption mechanism is played out. And there'll be some costs associated. You know, this is not designed to be a frictionless redemption, in fact, quite the contrary. But if they can make a couple of percent on that turn and that pays the financing holding cost, that's a good day in the office if you're a uranium trader. So we would expect that if it does start to trade back at a 5 or a 6% discount, you'll start to see demand from uranium traders and other market participants shoring it up. And where it becomes magic if you're a uranium trader 
is you might buy what you estimate to be the equivalent of 100,000 pounds worth of uranium via SPUT units. Then as that SPUT trades up and down, you can then trade in a paper sense, you can trade that position and potentially between when you enter into the SPUT position and if you if you end up redeeming um, that SPUT position for pounds, you can probably trade that as a uranium trader three or four times if there's market volatility. You might cover off your physical delivery in the physical market and sell your SPUT units at a profit. It gives traders a new mechanism with which they can um, assist in SPROT's uh, stated objective of adding transparency to the uranium market. So if we find that there's a greater pool of capital and this new instrument doesn't trade below, let's say, a 5 or 6 5 or 6% discount, that will bring a lot more money in. And in the short term, that'll certainly be beneficial for the sector. So then, is it a moonshot or a fizzer? Short term, definitely a moonshot. In the medium term, you've then got to think, well, how much uranium actually will leak out of the system in that way? Probably not very much in the scheme of things, because it's only traders who will want to use that mechanism. A utility will always want to use physical uranium purchases over going through some instrument where they still maintain a degree of risk. So if you're a utility, you don't want to buy SPUT units, even if it's a 10% discount. It's not worth having a 10% discount for your uranium if you're exposed to all of these administrative steps and some theoretical risk that SPUT could become bankrupt because their risk mitigation policies will rule that out. So I do think the leakage from the SPUT holdings will be very much at the margin. And quite quickly, I expect that the additional capital flows into SPUT and what that enables them to do with the size of their holdings will eclipse whatever potential negatives there are in the market with, with that availability of that uranium. Time will tell whether it's a moonshot or potentially a fissure. It, it, it will, it will. But wasn't this just inevitable? I, I just, I don't know, we, we, talk, we talked about it out of, out of the gate, but um, I, I, we'll have to look back at some of those interviews, but just felt like this was this moment was inevitable despite what the protestations. Um, well, look, we'd better wrap it up there because I know you've got places to be, Friday night, um, family, et cetera. Um, thank you very much for your time. Good to have you back. Good to have you, you back. Like, and um, great to be back. Glad the travels went well, um, and wow, what a market! Starting to heat up, right? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, let's see what's what the spot price is going to be when we're next on. It could be uh, could be really interesting from here, and I'm expecting it to be. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, it could be a nice Christmas present for everyone. Okay, so we'll let you go. Thanks, Matt.